This is Passing for Normal, conversations about change. That means conversations about hope, innovation, transformation, courage, activism, and being on the cutting edge. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, and here I speak with fascinating, pioneering change makers across many different fields. We talk about how to make change, meet change, and find the courage to create change in your life and in the larger world around you. Bringing new ideas into the mainstream? That's Passing for Normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal, where my guest today is writer, story consultant, and instructor Billy Murnett. Known as the guru of rom-com, Billy Murnett has guided so many into the genre of love lost and found through his best-selling screenwriting textbook, Writing the Romantic Comedy, and through his entertaining and insightful blog, Living the Romantic Comedy. For many years, he's been a script consultant and story analyst for Universal Studios, and until very recently, an award-winning instructor in the UCLA Extension Writing Program. We are going to be talking about love, obstacles, writing, and rewriting, so welcome, Billy. Thanks. Thanks for that invite uh, and description. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really, I'm so excited to get in this conversation with you, writer to writer. You're such a clear and clever writer. You are smart as can be and very entertaining. Plus, I'm a big... Should we we add to to this that you and I know each other through a writing group? We can absolutely add to this that you and I know each other through a writing group that we've been (laughs) together for many, many years. Eons. Eons. uh, It's... Dina Metzger is our guide and mentor in that. I think we both learned a lot from her, certainly about, uh, you know, uh, change, changeability, and uh, the rewriting process, along with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So you know that this podcast is all about change and changeability and helping people to navigate change of all sort. And so I want to talk to you specifically about the changes that happen to writing or because of writing, because I think that the writer is truly a change artist, opening up mm-hmm. words through imagination and craft. So I want to start just asking you, um, how did you become interested in romantic comedy so much that you're considered the expert on romantic comedy? Um, I think I was uh, benignly poisoned by my parents at an early age <laughs> yeah. in this regard. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom and dad uh, were very much uh, a very loving couple. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was a pre-adolescent we had a program in New York on New York television called Million Dollar Movie, where they would show a lot of old movies and they would repeat them. They'd show them in the late afternoon and they'd also show them at night and they'd repeat the same movie throughout the week. So uh, one of the things that they put on the air a lot in those days, we're talking, I guess, in the 1960s, late 60s, were a lot of the school comedies from mm-hmm. the 30s, specifically uh, Carrie Grant and Catherine Hepburn yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like Bringing Up Baby and other pictures of that ilk. So I was exposed to that material at an impressionable age. And mm-hmm. this combined with uh, my parents being a lot of fun and being, as I said, a very loving couple, I got a very sort of skewed, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, I have to say, benignly distorted view of uh, all things romantic and the idea of love being funny as well as dramatic. And uh, it just kind of stayed with me. And then early in my writing life, actually when I was supporting my first marriage, 
um, through a fluke, through a friend of mine who became an editor at uh, one of the romance presses, um, I became a romance novelist under a female known to Poon, and I actually wrote 20 romance novels that were published by Berkeley Jove uh, in a series called Second Chance in Love and Harlequin in a series called uh, Harlequin American. So in a way, as I was writing all of these books, I was very much channeling the movies I had seen in my youth, mm-hmm. and I was influenced by all that sort of screwball comedy. And so both in teaching my how to write romance novels and in writing them, I was getting further entrenched in you know, all of that stuff. And being a film student and a lover of all things film, I also, you know, I tracked down uh, if, for example, it was interesting to find out that Preston Sturges and Billy Wilder started out writing before they directed and they had done romantic comedies in their earlier days. Mm-hmm. And so I just, more as a hobby or just a, a lover of the form, I became kind of knowledgeable about it. And uh, when I started to work at UCLA Extension, uh, once I had moved out here from New York, uh, Linda Venus, who ran the writer's program, literally asked me, would you like to teach a course on romantic comedy? And in doing that, I did more research, you know, just found out more about the genre. And by the time I was done teaching that first course, and I know this sounds like one of those cliches that people just say, but it, it really did happen. My student said to me, gee, there's no textbook on this. Why don't you write it? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I really did take them at their word, and I kind of converted that course and all of my notes and everything I knew about it into the beginnings of this book. And then once the book came out, because it was, in fact, the only book of its kind that was out there, I was not the one who pronounced myself an expert. It just sort of happened by default. Uh, that I got to say, hey, I wrote the book on romantic comedy. Yes, you did write the book, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was the one. Yeah. And uh, I I guess it took, because it's still in print after 20 years, and in fact, uh, this coming year in February, HarperCollins is putting out my expanded and uh, revised, updated 20th anniversary version of the book. So there it is. Yeah, well. I guess, I'll take that title. First of all, I just want to say it's an excellent book. Being a lover of romantic comedies, I've written a few of them myself. Um, It's a fantastic book, both as a survey, as a history, and as a how-to. So I'm plugging the book, and (laughs) also um, very excited for this revised edition, which is being written, what, 20 years later? Yeah, so there was actually a lot to add. And in fact... um, I added more than a hundred pages of oh, wow. material to the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what's so changed yeah. in rom coms? What do you write? Uh, what do you? Well, what have you included? What's your conclusion? I would, I would say, don't get me started. But that, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can, I can go on. Um, well, there, there's a lot to encapsulate, but I'll just say, generally speaking, uh, there was a kind of a death and resurrection of the entire genre. Um, mm-hmm. It got abused and made formulaic by a studio system that really was questioning the kinds of movies they were making. And uh, while the rest of us out here in the non-movie world were getting married later in life and not getting married so much statistically, and the entire dating situation changed with Tinder and Grindr and 
you know, all of the social media mm -hmm. and uh, less people being married and raising children, much more single moms raising or single parents raising kids. Uh, I won't go into all the statistics, but there was a real sea change in society over the past 20 years. And the studios, you know, I, I would liken them to being like giant tankers where, you know, it's not hard to turn that ship around quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, they, were, they were too slow on the uptake to realize that by simply flogging the same formula, formulaic kind of cookie cutter, lesser kind of a rom-com, they were not, no longer really speaking to the audience. And by the turn of this past century, you would see all these kind of articles coming out going, you know, the 20 stupidest things about romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. or, you know, what, what are your favorite cliches? And it just became more a figure of fun than a genre that people were taking seriously. Into that breach, smartly, uh, Judd Apatow and a few other filmmakers realized, uh, hmm, these sort of old school rom-coms are not doing so well. How about the male point of view on this? And in a sense, they hijacked the genre in the yes, uh, they 2000 did. <laughs> yes, they and, did. Uh, you know, you, you, you had all of these knocked up and 40-year-old virgin and uh, wedding crashers yes. and a lot of other movies where it was the male point of view and this idea of sort of a raunchy romantic comedy. And that dominated the genre in the 2000s until roughly around the beginning of this uh, decade where you had a little bit of a backlash and a retrenching of, of female writers and female comedy writers mm -hmm. and actresses who uh, jumped, sort of trumped uh, Apatow in a sense. You had people like, well, Bridesmaids famously, even though mm -hmm. it's not technically a romantic comedy, uh, did a lot to finally put that cliche of women not being funny, put that one to rest, uh, hopefully for good. And then you had other artists like uh, Amy Schumer yeah. uh, with movies like Trainwreck, where they kind of uh, took the, the genre back, in a sense, and said, all right, if you want to be down, down and dirty and raunchy and tell truths about romance these days, here's the, the sort of neo-feminist take on that. And so we're sort of living in the, uh, I don't know, fallout makes it sound pejorative, but let's just say the productive back end of that, where nobody really knows what a good romantic comedy can be at this point, except that to speak to today's audience, it has to be diverse. It has to address a much more woke population and a, certainly a female population that wants to see less than the old fantasy on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so we're in the process of kind of discovering together what are the sorts of romantic comedies that people will respond to these days. So that, that in a nutshell, there's, there's what, uh, what's been going on. That's a fabulous nutshell. It's a fabulous nutshell. So here's a question. So, you know, it's a genre, and there are certain things about the genre that are universal, that are set. But so how, how much of, of the changes in the genre do you feel like are a reflection of our culture, and how much actually lead the culture? Mm, great question. Um, I think it's half and half. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to assign a percentage. Mm -hmm. But I think both forces are very much at work. Um, you know, in a way, the earlier romantic comedies, for a lot of us, were sort of like how we learned 
what romance was supposed to be. That's right. For better or worse, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. For exactly mm-hmm. for better or worse. I mean, which is both like good behaviors and bad behaviors. I think the thing that a lot of people misunderstand about the genre and that has created a lot of cultural confusion in this regard is that romantic comedies are courtship stories. Mm-hmm. They really are about how do these two people get together. And so there's this whole sort of misunderstanding, you know, the people who today point to like, oh, rom-coms ruined my life. And, you know, yes. men who've gotten the wrong cues and think that, for example, stalking is romantic, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they'll all point to romantic comedies as part of the problem. And what they're leaving out of that equation is nobody ever said that a romantic comedy was supposed to teach you how to sustain a loving relationship. That's right. What they've mainly been about is how do you win? You know, how Mm -hmm. do you you gain a coupling? And so for that reason, there's all kinds of nonsense that goes on in these stories (laughs) that, you know, is really only valid if you look at it that way. If you say, oh, okay, so that's how they met and that's how this thing, you know, got started. Uh, It's not at all uh, the genre. It's not at all a textbook in how in the real world to sustain and uh, grow inside of a relationship. And for that reason, I think people have taken a lot of the wrong cues from it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how we are influencing it, I think we're seeing it now. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a show like, um, well, Mindy Kaling's TV show, The Mindy mm-hmm. Project, comes yes. to mind. Uh, that idea of the, the, uh, the, the brown-skinned woman, um, 10, 15, 20 years ago, she would have had to be the sidekick. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have had to be the, the female protagonist, the white protagonist's best friend. Okay, well, so here's a woman of color saying, no, I'm the lead. Uh, and, and she becomes the focal point of the show. And you're seeing a lot more of diversity um, on every level. I'm, yes. I'm waiting now for the next trans romantic comedy to come to the fore, because I think that's, you know, it's just a matter of time yes. before we're there. Right for um, that. So I... I I do feel like it's up to us living, those of us who are in a progressive mode, uh, making our voices heard, and the studios and also independent filmmakers are hearing this, and they're saying, well, you know, people want to see on screen a better representation of what, what our society actually is yeah. at this point, which means uh, ethnically mixed couples, and it means uh, gay romantic comedies, and it means you know, love stories of every shape and form. So I think that in that regard, we are the ones who are more driving the trend mm-hmm. uh, than yeah. the studios. Yeah, because love is love is love, right? And it, it exactly. takes men, it, it's enduring and it's transformative. And I mean, it, at the heart of all of these stories, any kind of rom-com is the the enduring power of love to change people, right? To, to open mm-hmm. them up, to mm-hmm. open their eyes, to get them to do more than they thought they could Right. Yeah. yeah. And so love, love as the sort of agent of change in that sense, mm-hmm. the, the transformative power of love is perhaps the uber theme of the romantic comedy genre. Yes. Uh, there's, I, I can't, I can't think of a rom-com that has had the message falling in love stunts you <laughs> yes, <laughs> or, or somehow inhibits your growth. It's, yes. it's usually uh, a story about somebody who learns something and is bettered through the process of 
falling in love. Right, despite all their stubborn resistance and bad behavior mm-hmm. and, you know, all of mm-hmm. that, right? It's like when they're, when they're stung, when, you know, when Cupid's arrow strikes, when whatever that awakening, however that awakening happens in them, they are mm-hmm. better for it and we feel better for it too. <laughs> for watching, at least, at least, at least that's the story we like to tell ourselves. Yes, yes it is the story we like to tell ourselves. <laughs> so, um, so you're do you you know you've revised this book, you've added, you say like a hundred pages or more, um, and so let's talk about the revision process. Let's talk about that that part of the writer's job where you have to absolutely fall in love with your work, your characters, your work. You think this is exactly how it's supposed to go. And then you're required to make changes or you're invited to make changes in this case. So what is that process like for you? Um, revisioning, right? How, how does that work for you? How did that work for you? And I know that you also, you know, part of the work that you do is uh, informing or instructing other writers about how to do that as well. Yeah, let, let me start from that point of view, because to me, that's actually the most interesting thing. When, when, when you're working at the studio in the story department, uh, part of the process of my gig is if we uh, buy a given screenplay, if we're developing a project, every draft of that project goes through the story department for notes. So uh-huh. a big part of my job is I'm doing notes on drafts of a movie. And often that means uh, many different writers get involved and something evolves. Here's the interesting thing that I've noticed, just to cut to the chase, which is when something is begun, certainly a movie, uh, and there is a source that is on the page, a screenplay, that is very, very rarely the movie that ends up on screen. Mm-hmm. And what happens instead is a great, huge team of individuals gets involved in trying to sort of guide that ship into a harbor. And often what it means is the original idea of the story, the original concept of the story, is the only thing that remains in place. And more often than not, everything about it, all the aspects of execution, even down to who the lead may be, let's say, or uh, something as fundamental as the ending of a story, is completely subject to change. And when you're in that line of work, when you're on the side of the entity that is requesting those changes and making those changes and trying to make it happen, you realize how uh, mutable any given story can be. I mean, I do believe there's such a thing as the DNA of a story and that there is a basic uh, identity to a good story, but then the distance from that to something that can become a finished entity like a movie or, let's say, a finished novel, um, there's so many things that can be subject to change. Even, by the way, the writer's intentions. You may start out you know, thinking that you're writing about a certain specific thing, and then the more you get into it and the more you explore it, um, that, even that intention may shift over time. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say how many conversations I've had with writers, because I do consults on projects with writers, where they 
own up to the idea of, oh, I thought I was writing about X, but it turns out I'm really writing about Y. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, well, but actually, I really think what it's about is Z. <laughs> and, and that thing, in my own novel, I had a first novel that Random House published about 10 years ago. Uh, I did seven full drafts of it, and I would say that the theme of that work shifted in each one of those drafts. So by the time I got to the seventh draft, it was a slightly different, even thematic idea than I had started out with. And what gets involved in this is one part of the writing process that a lot of people don't pay as much attention to as they might, which is, who are you writing for? You know, it, it, it's one thing to have the beauty of the self-expression and drive up the story to express, and I want to say it, and I want to tell it, and that I, I'm firmly, you know, I'm way behind that to get it out there and get it on the page. But once you do that, I do think it makes sense to raise that question and go, okay, so here's my story, and who do I think is going to actually be listening to this message, or who's going to get this message in the bottle, who's going to look at this thing, and it kind of puts you in touch with the larger culture, and you have to have more of a sense of, well, so who am I writing for, and who am I a part of, and what, you know, what's the context of the story, and what, what is the effect that I want from mm -hmm. all of this, sure. um, much in a way that people who are now waking up to the idea of white privilege, for example. Uh, often it's very kind of enlightened people who just have never really questioned what it's like to be white as opposed to anything else. And when you really uh, hold their feet to the flame of that issue, they'll go, oh, all right, in this larger context of the world, I now have to question the assumptions I've been making within this story or the assumptions I've been making about this character or, or my point of view on it. And I just cite that as one of many examples of what I mean by context. Right, and so sometimes and, it's the context that's, you know, informing how these changes happen or from the outside in, but, and sometimes it's the material itself. It's like as a writer, mm -hmm. sometimes you don't really even realize what you're saying. Until it gets said. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that so much of writing is about a willingness to sort of get on that road and take that exploration and to understand that it's not simply getting it out. It's once you've got it out, what are you saying? You know, and what do you want to say by this? And what's being said between the lines and in the subject that you might not even be conscious of? And I think that getting writers to be more aware of that and to tap into that and to try to even understand what it's like to ask a writer, what's the thing in this story that you, you're most fiercely protecting, for example, mm -hmm. is a great question to figure out, like, what's the thing that a person is really holding on to in a story? And once you get to the heart of that, that may mean that everything else falls away which means it may be an entirely other cast of characters, just to be extreme, or it may be an entirely other third act or back end of the story, depending upon what it is that you discover that you're really interested in getting across. So we read things, and what we are reading in a published novel that gets all the accolades and all the attention is the product of a really, usually, 
uh, a really involved process. But we read it and we think, ah, they wrote this beautiful thing, and it's in this beautiful voice, and the writing is beautiful, and it's fantastic, and there it is, and we, we have this sort of misperception of what a written work is. But what you are seeing when you're reading a finished product like that is usually the product of a, a very complex process of getting to that final expression. And so you have to be willing, if you understand that, to in a sense let go of all of the restrictions that we self-impose on a piece of work. Like, it has to take place in Cincinnati. I love Cincinnati. <laughs> Just yeah, pull right, one out of a right. hat. Or, mm-hmm. you know, or it has to be a woman like this because I'm a woman like this. Or any, any one of the yes. thousands of things that we can hold on to. When, when you realize that all of that stuff, in a sense, is up for grabs, not because of the commercial designs of an industry, but because of what is the most valuable and the most meaningful exchange of ideas that you can have with a reader, that's where I think being more flexible to changing what you're writing is really, really vital. And I wish that more writers were, were open to that because there's a, there's a real tendency to uh, stubbornly hold on to a given draft or a given conception of a story uh, because we have this sort of us versus them feeling of like, well, the, the writer, you know, the integrity of the writer, don't tell me what I should be doing. All of that stuff to me is so sort of um, misunderstood or misperceived because it's not necessarily about satisfying some authoritarian or uh, ideological uh, establishment. It's about being as clear and useful as you can be as a writer in getting to the heart of what you're writing about and, and getting something across that actually has a meaningful effect on the people who receive it. That's right, because it is to be received. And so what is the best way for it to be received? And, um, and like I was saying, sometimes as the writer, you don't even really know what you're writing until at least the first draft, oh, second draft. You know, it's like, what is this? What's really the mm-hmm. kernel here? What's the essence? And oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And what it takes to get there, right? What it all yep. that it takes to get there. But I love what you're saying about, you know, how how mutable a story can be. There are certain things about mm-hmm. a story that that are at its essence and everything else um, can change uh, in, service to the, in service to the story. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, yeah. Well, and, and so it's the process of understanding what the story is, right, mm-hmm. and, and what you feel is the essence of the story. But then there is that you have to have that willingness to to let it develop and, let, in a sense, let go of it and, and go where it may go. Yeah, so how do you deal, how do you deal with that letting go part? Uh, I've just gotten so ingrained in that practice, mm-hmm. I think because of my job, yeah. that I'm the first one in the room to go, okay, maybe she's, you know, maybe it's not a her. Yeah. Or, oh, okay, maybe they don't die at the end. Or, you know, or yeah. maybe it doesn't take place here. Uh, like, whatever it is, I'm the first person, I think, to go, um, what's the basic underlying idea, and what does that mean? 
meaning what does it mean to you, what might it mean to your reader, and so what can you open up in trying to clarify that meaning and go deeper into it. Often that means letting go of externals that you may think are all important. Yeah, not so easy, but uh, it's a good... um well, it's a well, good I think the basic, Yeah, I think the basic thing, the easiest way to look at it, I think something I'm always saying to people is a first draft is for finding out what the story is, yeah. comma, which means a first draft is just something to change. Mm-hmm. Because if you, can, if you can understand that a first draft is just telling yourself, in a sense, what you have, you know, what the story is, to me, the implication of that is, and that means, okay, now you can begin to, you know, get your hands on it and manipulate it and massage it and do whatever you need to do to clarify what you think you're saying and to get even closer to uh, maximum communication. Uh, it's it, it, you know, no, I can't even imagine. Like I read some writers, and I love the work so much. And I have to remind myself that it's so rare that what we're reading is anything close to a first draft of anything. Yeah. Um, and if you and if you understand that, then I think that gives you a leg up because then you go, oh, all right. If it took it took Ernest Hemingway apparently thirty nine uh, drafts to get the last page of Farewell to Arms written, hmm. and uh, famously in his Paris review interview with George Plimpton, Plimpton asked him, so so what. What was it that took, took you so long? Well, you know, why, why 39 drafts of this? Uh, what is it that you were trying to do? And Hemingway's response was, I may be paraphrasing a little bit, he said, getting the words right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right, yes, yes, exactly. So, but again, that's a guy who's just, uh, you know, he's, he's just working his material and... Uh, you know, uh, it, it's just somebody who understood that, okay, it may take 39 times to get it right, but you have to have both a faith in your own ability to see the process through and a faith in those kind of um, ephemerals, you know, on the more spiritual side, the, the, the faith that if you, if a story has a hold on you and it won't let go and you have to get it out there, then it's there's probably something in there that's worth pursuing, which means who knows what form it may ultimately take. Uh, but you just need to make the commitment to sort of hang on there, you know, uh, and uh, bar the doors and just go for it. Yeah. Which means a willingness to, uh, to let it uh, morph and uh, metamorphize into its better form. That's such a that's such a great way to say that. I think that's so helpful to people. Um, there's such a myth that what I'm reading or what I'm seeing is like the person's first draft. They just kind of sat down and wrote it, and so it's really yes, right. <laughs> like if only, yeah, <laughs> if only. It, it doesn't yeah. work that way. It doesn't work that no. way. Um, and so. In terms of living the romantic comedy, which is the name of your blog and things you've spoken of before about living the romantic comedy, um, I want to know, what is your definition of a happy ending? 
<laughs> oh, God. These days, that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, it's much harder than it used to be. I mean, a happy ending back in the day was marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, a happy ending back in the day was one relationship. You know, this idea of there's only one. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who is now, I'm now on my third and final marriage, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I would never, you know, advocate that there is only one love in the world. Um, so I think the happy ending by today's standards is probably something more along the lines of an ending that confirms the significance of a relationship. You know, it's, it's kind of, I, that sounds simplistic, but I mean, a happy ending is, in the romantic comedy, is where two people get to a point where uh, the significance of their being together is acknowledged and honored. And that may be enough, in a sense, at this point. I mean, there's even, you know, there's a number of romantic comedies that don't end in the couple being together, yeah. right? Um, most recently, Her, uh, which I do see as a rom-com, although it's also a drama and a sci-fi movie and many other things. In Her, uh, man falls in love with software uh, system. Mm-hmm. Um, he loses her in the end, but his life has been immeasurably changed and, and bettered yeah. from his relationship with this uh, operating system. And so by the end of the movie, what's really being uh, acknowledged and uh, given its due is the significance of this relationship. It's not that he had to marry his computer. It's that, you know, being in this relationship gave him uh, riches beyond what he had before, changed him, uh, put him on a better path, he's a more enlightened human being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think now these days, a happy ending is more along those lines. It's sort of like, what's the get? You know, what, what does this relationship mean? And does it really change your life for the better and give you both, hopefully both of you, usually in these idealized stories, it's mutual, um, just a better way to live or, or a better enjoyment of life. Sure. So whether that means... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, or knowing that you are or were loved and have loved. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've had that experience, and it changed you, and it's something that is now a part of who you are. And I think that we're in that place where the significance of that is uh, something that people don't take for granted, and, and we're all sort of working towards it. So it's, it's not so much material happy ending as it is the... Uh, I can say immaterial, but, yeah. but it's temporal, more than, temporal, you know, yeah. Happy ending for your soul hmm. where we are. Oh, well, this is the perfect place for us to end our conversation, even though I have no interest <laughs> at all in ending our conversation. <laughs> no, no, I understand. That's great. No, it's really, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been so much fun. So um, can you please tell our listeners how they can find you and your books and um, how sure. can they find you? Uh, the easiest thing is just billymernick.com, which is B-I-L-L-Y-M-E-R-N-I-T.com. And you'll see links there to my blog and to everything else that I'm doing and have done. And uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll be honest. I've been neglecting the blog over the past year or two, and I'm just now sort of getting back into reactivating it and being on there more often. But uh, well, there's still plenty of juicy material there, so I I wouldn't (laughs) apologize. And when is the book coming out? Um, February 11th, uh, 2020. So uh, pre-Oscars. and I tried to, you know, I tried to get in references to things that have been released this year. So hopefully it'll be, it'll be about as current as a book can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of change, I even went so far as to change some fundamental theory that was in the original volume. Mm-hmm. So there may be some, some, some Twitter heads may explode over <laughs> some, of the, some of the changes that I did. But hopefully oh, I they'll, can't they'll, wait. They'll go with it. We'll see. Yeah. I can't wait. Well, Billy Mernon, thank you so much. It's been uh, so fun and informative. I thank you. You're so welcome. A pleasure. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about change. If you like our podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. It helps our audience to grow. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about the Changeability books and about all the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Dare to bring new ideas forward. Our world needs you right now.